It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. As most of you know, I've been listening to the show over the years. The show is in two parts. Ordinarily, the first part of the show, we take questions regarding estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Tonight, we're going to be a little different because, frankly, this is the Labor Day weekend, and I'm not in the studio taking questions. We taped our interviews ahead of time. And a lot of you know that when we tape our interviews, we're usually taping our interviews in 74th Street and 5th Avenue in Brooklyn, our main office. We broadcast live most weekends, almost every weekend, from Broadway and Wall Street at 111 Broadway. But tonight, we're not live in the studio, so we can't take any phone calls or any messages. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you can give us a call Tuesday, the day after Labor Day, at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, what are we going to do tonight? Well, most of you know, during the second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and of course, every once in a while, we talk about baseball. And I think we're going to be talking somewhat about baseball tonight. One of the guys we're going to have on is is our, one of our favorite guests, Ron Hunt. Now, Chris, you probably never uh, saw Ron Hunt play, right? No, I've never, I've never had the opportunity. He was a good hard-nosed ball player, and he, in 1964, the fans voted him ahead of Bill Mazeroski as the starting second baseman for the National League All-Star game. I, I, I would have to disagree with that respectfully as a fellow Polish person, but um, I'm sure he had he had his, you know, the good opportunity to play. Also, later in the show, we're going to be talking to Jay Jaffe, who writes in his book that Bill Mazeroski does not belong in the Hall of Fame. I would, again, have to respectfully disagree with him. I think that Bill Mazeroski's career does definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, especially for his, his game-winning home run. But that's one, one event. Roger Maris is not in the Hall of Fame. He had 61 home runs in 1961. Well, Roger Maris also couldn't play a defensive second base like Bill Mazeroski could. That's true, but then Roger Maris is a pretty good right fielder, I have to say so myself. But, all right, you know, and part of the question is, do we really know the defensive metrics of some of the great defensive ball players like Bill Mazeroski? Are we underestimating them? Which, of course, one of my arguments is Gil Hodges belongs in the Hall of Fame. And it's not just it's not just his career. It's a combination. Yes, he had a good career. He hit a, he drove in 100 RBIs almost every year for a very good team. He won the Golden Glove the first three, four years the Golden Glove was in effect. You know, some people say, well, Gil Hodges won four Golden Gloves. Yeah, but they didn't have a Golden Glove for the first five, six years of his career. So he was a Gold Glove winning first baseman, a guy who drove in 100 runs. He has one of the greatest managerial accomplishments of all time. He won the pennant with the 1969 Mets. Not only won the pennant, he won the World Series. And you go into his non-baseball career. He was a Bronze Star winner, Battle of Okinawa. If anybody belongs in the Hall of Fame, I think Gil Hodges belongs in the Hall of Fame. Bill Mazeroski, maybe we have a better clue on defensive metrics, but uh, Mr. Jaffe doesn't believe that Bill Mazeroski or Gil Hodges belong in the Hall of Fame. And that's what baseball is all about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you compare the players from yesteryear to the guys now, the numbers are so inflated. The game's almost entirely different. Um, but I think then defense was really important, and it was much more important then than it is now. So from my standpoint, I kind of I kind of lend credence to the to the theory that a good defensive player, a really good defensive player, should that should count towards his uh, his credentials to going in the Hall of Fame. All right. So first tonight we'll begin talking baseball. Then we're going to talk about the Civil War Roundtable, which Mr. Kaznicki here is the new vice president of programming for the Civil War Roundtable starting this year. And then we'll wrap up at the end. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. 
The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Ask the lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 12th at Bocelli's Restaurante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. And on Wednesday, September 13th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. We're going to be talking right now with Christopher Kaznicki, one of the attorneys at Connors and Sullivan. But more importantly, he's vice president of programming for the Civil War Roundtable of New York. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing good, Mr. Connors. How are you? We've got an exciting, I think, an exciting year coming up for the Civil War Roundtable of New York. Who's our first speaker? On September 13th, that's a Wednesday of 2017, we'll have first up Williamson Murray. He is a professor emeritus at Ohio State University, and he's going to be talking about his book, A Savage War. And specifically, he's going to be talking about a military history of the Civil War. And he's one of the few people, one of the few historians out there who actually still studies military history. So he's going to be a great guy to have on September 13th, 2017. Again, that's a Wednesday. Right. And some of you may remember you just listened to Williamson Murray speak last week on our show. October, we're going to have something a little bit different. We're having Joseph Owen, a historian with the National Park Service. We always have historians with the National Park Service with us. But his book is going to be Texas at Gettysburg, Blood and Glory with Hood's Texas Brigade. How did you find him? Well, he's somebody that I know has been writing books about the uh, Hood's Brigades, and they've been talking about the Texans. Um, and he has a new book coming out, and he was, uh, he's been a guy who has been in a lot of Civil War roundtables across the South, as well as a lot of Civil War roundtables in the north, but um, hasn't gotten up to our New York roundtable. So I figured he'd be a great addition to have come in and talk a little bit about not only the relevance, but also the importance of Hood's Brigade and exactly what they did at Gettysburg and talking about these Texans coming all the way up to Pennsylvania to fight on behalf of the Confederacy. Now, we're changing our schedule. Those of you who have been used, used to listening to our show and going to the Civil War Roundtable meetings, it was traditional. We always met in the, the second Wednesday of the month. But in order to reduce costs, we're moving our meeting night in November to Monday, the second Monday of each month. And we're going to kick off November 13th, that Monday, with West Point Night. What's the tradition of West Point Night, Chris? West Point Night, we always have either a speaker or somebody from West Point talking about um, West Point graduates or aspects of, of West Point during the Civil War. Um, a lot of times it could be a history professor that's out of West Point who will be talking about aspects of the Civil War. And a lot of times we have speakers who are talking about the actual West Point careers of some of the people who are in the Civil War. So um, it's a night that specifically focuses on West Point and the West Point graduates. In December, 
December 11th, you have one of my favorite speakers. Tell us about them. Yeah, we have great the great uh, Bud Robertson, James I. Robertson, coming in to uh, talk to us. He's uh, retired now, but he's a distinguished professor emeritus at Virginia Tech University, and he's one of the preeminent Civil War historians of the last two decades. He's um, he's He's got a couple topics that he can talk about, one of which may be talking about A.P. Hill, and, and another one he could talk about Stonewall Jackson. He's going to let us know which one he's going to speak about, um, but he is always an in- impressive person to talk to, and again, one of the preeminent historians on the Civil War in the United States. In January, it's our it's traditional again that we have our Lee Jackson night and the speaker either talks about Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson's. What do we have this year? Well, this year we have someone very interesting. We have someone um, named Michael Corda. Now, he is um, or he was the editor-in-chief of Simon Schuster for almost 40 years and now he's the editor-in-chief uh, emeritus of Simon Schuster. And if the name Corda sounds familiar, um, his father and grandfather were 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 long parts of the beginning of Hollywood they were producers and directors um, and he uh, went in another direction and became an editor and an author and to that end he's written um, many books um, and a lot of biographies and one of the most recent biographies that he wrote was about um, General Robert E. Lee called Clouds of Glory. It's about the life and legend of Robert E. Lee. It was a bestseller, um, and we're excited to have him speak. He's one of the. Uh, he's a great uh, person and a resource regarding um, histories, and he's one of the the preeminent biographers. February we have the Baron Des Lincoln Award, which a committee is going to choose that person who best. You know, exemplifies the life of Lincoln, either in history. It doesn't necessarily have to be an author. Sometimes we've had some filmmakers come on, but that's going to be the Baron Des Lincoln Award. So that's left to another committee. March, again, we have one of my favorite speakers, Dr. Kurt Fields. Now, what's Dr. Kurt Fields going to be talking about? Well, Dr. Kurt Fields, is, in case if you don't know, he has uh, not only is he a historian who has his PhD and he knows all about the history and the background of General Ulysses S. Grant, he also is a spitting image of the general himself. Um, he looks like General U- Ulysses S. Grant. He talks like U.S. Grant. He acts like U.S. Grant. And we are honored to have him on that March 12th, 2018 day, coming to our Civil War Roundtable, where he will, Dr. Kurt Fields, portray General Ulysses S. Grant announcing his run for the presidency in 1868. So we're excited to have that. Which about, it, it is very close to the 150th anniversary from when General Grant announced his run for the presidency back in 1868. April 9th, we're doing a little something different. John Fazio, and he's a lawyer, and he's saying that Jefferson Davis should have been indicted in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. Yeah, we're excited to have John Fazio come by. Um, he has his new book, it's called Decapitating Lincoln, and um, the Captain Lincoln, the Jefferson Davis, Judah Benjamin, and the plot to assassinate Lincoln. And he makes some very interesting points about the conspiracy that was um, that was between John Wills Booth and Jefferson Davis in order to assassinate the president, uh, President Lincoln. Uh, this was not an event that just was hammered out by John Wilkes Booth and done by his own. What... Um, John Fazio is saying is that there is documentation and there is there is actual direct evidence that shows that Jefferson Davis was involved in this conspiracy and in fact he was probably the one who who blessed John Wilkes Booth's assassination attempt. Um, so we're excited to hear what evidence he has and what presentations he has and we're uh, about him talking about that new book decapitating uh, the Union. Because I've uh, I've heard other speakers say there's absolutely no evidence to connect Jefferson Davis with the Lincoln assassination. So it'd be It'd be interesting to get, you know, a different perspective on that argument if there is an argument on it. All right. So we got an exciting year lined up for the Civil War Roundtable. We're still going to be meeting at the Three West Club in September and October. We're going to meet at the second Wednesday of the month, November through the rest of the year. And by year, we're talking more of like a school academic year. We're going to meet on the second Monday of the month. I hope that doesn't get too confusing. But Civil War Roundtable, if you want to call for a reservation or find any more information on the Civil War Roundtable, give us a call at 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. Listen, 
If you have any doubts about coming to the Civil War, if you're interested in history, please come. You'll find it's a, it's a very interesting experience. We have a three-course meal. Usually it's a very relaxing night, and I have never gone to a Civil War roundtable meeting yet where I have not learned something interesting about the history of the war. And every every month we learn something new. So join us. You can see our new vice president of programming. Chris, are you going to miss any of the meetings this year? No, I will not. I'll be there for every one of them early. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man, but there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Time now for Connors Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Hall of Fame baseball. Sometimes there's some controversy about who should be in, who should be out. We have a gentleman right now who's done a lot of research in the area, and he has a book out, The Cooperstown Casebook. Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, who should be in, and who should pack their plaques? The gentleman is Jay Daffy. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Baseball Hall of Fame. Does anybody really care anymore? Yeah, I think everybody. I, I mean, I think a lot of people care. Not everybody, but I think uh, whether or not you're uh, into uh, following the proceedings, most baseball fans and, and media have a strong reaction uh, ranging from uh, ranging from I don't care to I care a lot, and I care particularly that this guy is out or that this guy gets in. You know, a lot of us baseball fans, we have a problem. You know, how do we compare a ball player who played, let's say, in 1910 with a ball player who played in 1930 with a ball player who played in 1990? Yeah, this, you know, that, that is a problem because scoring levels change over time uh, fairly dramatically, uh, and uh, ballparks uh, differ greatly. You know, we've got, uh, uh, say, Coors Field or Fenway Park, which, which confer great advantages on hitters. And then you've got Dodger Stadium in the mid-60s, which uh, conferred a great advantage on pitchers. Uh, what I found is that uh, now that we have developed uh, advanced metrics that help to equalize for this, uh, namely wins above replacement, uh, it, we can, instead of being attached to the round number of milestones that generally signify election or or uh, their approaches uh, at least signify election, like 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, and 300 wins. Uh, it, we can look at the value that each player provided, uh, doing more than paying lip service to defense, um, 
estimating a player's base running skill as well, uh, and uh, uh, for a pitcher, the quality of the defense behind him. So, um, you know, with these tools, we can, I think, do a better job of comparing uh, candidates to the players already in the Hall of Fame and identifying the ones that really stand out and advocating for their election. One of the more controversial to some extent, a lot of heated debates, Pete Rose. Should he be in or out? Well, I think Pete Rose is a, is, a, is a is a very different matter in all this because you know statistically he's more than qualified to be in. He did everything that uh, uh, a guy could do to get in. But uh, the gambling issue for me, uh, you know, and, and I think for baseball in general is 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 a huge uh, uh, deal breaker. I mean, he did the one he broke the one rule that was posted in every clubhouse since 1920. Uh, he lied about it for decades. Uh, he tried to profit on it. And, you know, it got him banned for life. I, I, I think baseball did the right thing because if the results, of, if the integrity of the results is uh, in doubt, you've got professional wrestling, not baseball. And the same for Joe Jackson, obviously. Yeah, the same for Joe Jackson. I mean, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate. I think there, there are some, you know, some circumstances that, may, that, that are obviously lost to history now. But uh, to me, I think that's the right call. Okay, now steroid users. What's your opinion? Well, I think that you should be able to, you should be able to differentiate between what what came before uh, testing was in place in 2004 uh, with the suspensions and what came afterwards. Uh, before, I think you've got uh, a complete institution of failure that prevented the implementation of any kind of uh, deterring policy. Uh, you have the Wild West and the players who ran roughshod over that. You know, I think we have to live with it. I mean, I'm talking about Barry Bonds, obviously, who's uh, uh, the 10-year anniversary of his breaking the record, uh, Hank Aaron's home run record, uh, is today here as we speak. Um, you know, Roger Clemens. Uh, I think, you know, you, you don't have to uh, induct everybody from that era. Uh, but to me, I think you go by the numbers, and, and to me, the numbers have uh, Bonds and Clemens uh, well above the bar, McGuire kind of on the borderline, Sosa below the bar. After testing is in place, I think it's it's much more fair to hold it against those guys. I think you know Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, Rafael Palmero. These guys earned their suspension. We have no doubt. They knew the consequences of the rules. They broke them. You know they can pay the cost. Um, you know to me that's that's a, that's a simple way of of, uh, uh, of dividing the era uh, before and after. So Alex Rodriguez is out. Barry Bonds is in. Uh, yes, as far as I'm concerned, yes. Okay, interesting. Let's get back to some old-time traditional baseball. Again, you know, I, I, I think you can say that some ball players from the dead ball era are, are overlooked, and of course some ball players from the 20s and 30s maybe are generously put into the Hall of Fame. What are your thoughts? Can you give the, uh, some examples to the listening audience? Yeah, I, you know, there are a whole bunch of guys from, from the 20s and 30s who, uh, who were elected by the Veterans Committee in the late 60s and early 70s uh, when Frankie Frisch, former uh, Cardinals and, and Giants great second baseman, who's a Hall of Famer himself, uh, was on the committee, and his teammate Bill Terry as well. Uh, they uh, elected a lot of their cronies, guys who played in a high offense era uh, for, and excelled for a very short time. I mean, the league, the whole league in, uh, in 1930 hit 300, uh, the National League, that is. Um, you know, those stats, they just don't have the value that, uh, uh, say, hitting 300 in 1960 did or, or, or uh, uh, you know, the dead ball era. I think if you go back to the dead ball era, a guy that I point to as being uh, very worthy of admission is Bill Dolan, uh, shortstop mostly for the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. Um, at one point, he held the, the record uh, for the longest hitting streak in the National League, was a, was a good fielder, uh, was kind of an angry guy, uh, known for his temper and his uh, his, his uh, willingness to get ejected and go play the horses, but uh, uh, he put up some great numbers in his day and helped uh, uh, the Giants win some championships. Now, I know there are a lot of Yankee fans, if they look at your book, they're not going to believe that Bill Dolan was a better ball player than Derek Jeter. Well, I, you know, I think that... Uh, uh, when you put it all into context, I mean, Dolan may be just a, just ahead of Derek Jeter in the, in the rankings of my system, which is called Jaws. But I, you know, that number isn't the only thing that you should bring to a Hall of Fame argument. Um, you know, to me, uh, obviously, those numbers are based on regular season contributions. They don't cover uh, postseason play, and obviously, Derek Jeter did a lot to uh, etch his name into the history books. Uh, with that, they don't uh, consider awards won or other historical importance. And I think. 
you know, you can look at uh, uh, any player, you know, really, and, and, and see what other contributions they made, and that could help sway uh, an argument uh, in, in favor or against. You know, JAWS is a tool, and it's, like any tool, it's only as good in the hands of uh, somebody who knows how to use it. You know, without it, it's 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 just a cudgel. Now, again, I think you explained WAR win, wins above replacement. What's JAWS? JAWS is the Jaffe wins above replacement score. What it is is an average of uh, both the player's career wins above replacement and what I call his peak score, which is his best seven seasons. Uh, the, the the upshot is that you know some players are in there for sticking sticking around and having long careers and putting up great totals, and others are there for uh, burning brightly but briefly. You know, Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, Ralph Kiner come to mind. Um, this is a concept that Bill James introduced in his historical abstract in 1985. The idea is that you know if you want to rank the all-time greats, you you can get very different lists if you're going by career or peak. Um, you know, at the at the top, generally you've got some of the same names, but uh, uh, you know, towards the middle, it, it differs. And what I wanted to do was to weight those two things equally because I found that uh, in some cases uh, the peak score uh, explained who was in the Hall of Fame better than the career scores. So. Um, that's that's the number. It's uh, it, it's it's something that's become uh, fairly popular over uh, the last decade or so, and actual voters use it. How much weight do you give longevity? I you know I think it's important. I don't think you can have a you know a, a, a true Hall of Fame career without sticking around for a good long time. Um, but you know I don't think that everybody who sticks around for 20 years is necessarily a Hall of Famer. I think you know that's what uh, that's why we look at these numbers and see. You know, really, what was their true value? Were they contributing on both sides of the ball? Were they uh, were they particularly valuable, uh, more much more valuable than the than than the com- competition? Getting back to some of your arguments, whatever. Why is Orlando Cepeda in the Hall of Fame and Dick Allen is not in the Hall of Fame? That's a really good question. I would I would argue that uh, that that's, that should be the other way around. Uh, Cepeda was good, uh, but once he got hurt, uh, he really kind of stuck around and, and didn't didn't provide a whole lot of value. Uh, whereas Allen, you know, had a had a shorter career. He had, uh, I think, he was a better hitter uh, at his peak. Um, rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, I think he was very damaged from the way that he was handled uh, uh, as he was coming up through the minor leagues and uh, in Philadelphia, subject to just horrible racism. Um, you know, he was sent to Little Rock uh, to be the first uh, black professional player in all of Arkansas, uh, and the Phillies gave him no support there, and he was. Uh, um, you know, I think that that kind of scarred him. And Philadelphia itself, when he arrived there in the mid-60s, was, uh, was a fairly racist place as well, unfortunately. Uh, that's why Kurt Flood didn't want to be traded there. Uh, and Kurt Flood was actually traded for Dick Allen uh, in that fateful deal that set up uh, Flood's challenge to the reserve clause. But, uh, you know, I think Allen is one of, the, one, of the guy, one of the top guys outside the Hall of Fame, if you go back to the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, that my system flags as being worthy of induction. Okay, now I just learned something. The Texas League, early 1960s, there weren't African-American ballplayers playing out of Little Rock? Uh, there, uh, Allen integrated the league. Um, you know, it was uh, – uh, and the newspapers of the day asked it asked uh, uh, asked the writers to down to downplay that because they didn't want more people coming out to the ballpark, uh, uh, you know, and creating an angry mob situation. Yeah, learn something every day. Let, let, let's go back, you know, Bill Dolan or whatever. I think some of the ball players who played right around the turn of the century get a raw deal because as hitters, they weren't as good a hitters in by batting average as guys who played in the 1890s, and they certainly weren't good batting averages the guys who played in the 1920s but it wasn't their skill it was the nature of the game that's correct I, I, there's no doubt in my mind about that i mean you know you had i think you had uh high batting average averages but obviously not a lot of home runs and and uh, uh there was a greater spread of talent uh within the league at the time so you had you know the ty cobbs of the world uh and uh you know a few others tris speaker and rogers hornsby those guys stood out uh, Hornsby is a bit later, more more of a high offense there. But those guys stood out. But uh, uh, there are a lot of guys that I think, at, at first glance, we don't necessarily ap- appreciate uh, the the extent of their value uh, when they were playing in in this era when when runs were very scarce. Give the the younger guy who maybe wants to do some research. Who should he look up in Baseball Reference? Um, Bobby Gritch is is somebody from the 70s and 80s, uh, second baseman for the Orioles, who really stood out, won a lot of gold gloves, uh, was one of the uh, uh, 
the the keys to both of those, the success of both of those teams came on, came along a bit after the Orioles' big late '60s, early '70s peak, but just provided tremendous value on both sides of the ball. Uh, Alan Trammell, who fell off the ballot after 15 years, the great Tiger shortstop, is another one uh, I would say to look at. Ted Simmons, uh, great hitting catcher uh, in the uh, in the 70s and and early 80s, uh, I think has been slighted because there are already three catchers from that era in the Hall. Um, Minnie Minoso, uh, boy, what a ball player in the 50s. The uh, uh, the first black uh, Latin American player. Uh, in the majors, and a real trailblazer, somebody who Cepeda himself called the Black Jackie Robinson. Um, uh, his career uh, in the majors was shortened uh, by the color line. Uh, he made uh, some gimmicky pinch-hitting appearances in the late 70s and early 80s that I think uh, adversely affected his Hall of Fame support. Uh, to me, he's a no-brainer. Um, unfortunately, he didn't live to see him uh, himself elected into the Hall, died a couple years ago, just as he was getting close. You know, one we're in Brooklyn. So one last question, Gil Hodges. You know, my system does not love Gil Hodges. Uh, I wish it weren't so. Uh, I think more energy, emotional energy has, has been expended on trying to get Hodges into the Hall of Fame than anyone else. Uh, when I look at his career, uh, what, what my system sees is that he was maybe the fifth best uh, of those uh, Boys of Summer Dodgers uh, and that he was uh, – taking great advantage of Ebbets Field, uh, which was a very hitter-friendly park. And once you neutralize for that, uh, the numbers just aren't special enough, I don't think, to merit induction. But, you know, I certainly understand the emotional arguments and, you know, the connection uh, that people felt to him and the connection to the 1969 Miracle Mets. Um, somebody else is going to have to make a stronger argument than I can. Because part of that, the 69 Mets, is one of the greatest managerial accomplishments of all time. I don't disagree with you there, but you know, again, that's a that's a that's a that's a more subjective consideration, and and uh, uh, like I said, I, I you know, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't burn down the place if Gil Hodges were elected, but uh, if my numbers show that Gil Hodges is is, is on the wrong side there, I yeah, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna go by my numbers here and and uh, uh, live with the consequences. So the Hall Hall of Fame election rules about integrity, sportsmanship, character, and so forth. That doesn't count for Gil Hodges. Uh, it does, but it you know it doesn't move move the needle enough. Um, I'm not a big believer in the in 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 the validity of the character clause, uh, which has mostly been used as a, as a as a means of keeping players out. Uh, in the in the book, I explore uh, the use of the character clause, and Hodges was actually somebody who uh, was often cited uh, you know as uh, in favor of that clause. Um, to me, it's just not enough to get a, you know, to to get a guy over the line. I think that's kind of what I would what I would call maybe like a tiebreaker type of thing rather than, um, you know, a, a, a first cut. Uh, there are a lot of great sportsmen, uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of players with, with great integrity. Uh, that doesn't mean they should all be in the Hall of Fame. All right, we'll disagree on that one. Again, one final point. Why is the Hall of Fame important? The, the, the Hall of Fame is important because, uh, you know, baseball history has a connection to it. Baseball has a connection to its history like no other sport. Uh, fans carry the Hall of Fame around uh, with them in their heads. Everybody's got a beef about it. Everybody's got uh, a passionate feeling about it. And I think that's one of the things that, that, that connects all baseball fans. And, and I think uh, it's important to recognize the right guys and, and uh, to accurately tell the story of baseball. Okay, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. hope your book does well. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How it will affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? 
These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is one of my favorite ball players when I was a boy growing up in New York, second baseman for the New York Mets, Ron Hunt. How you doing, Ron? Okay, I had a heart valve put in. Uh, otherwise, I started rehab about uh, two weeks ago, and I'm starting to feel a little bit better. It's something that I don't know anything about. You know, when you get injured 15, 18 times, that's one thing. You know, you can see it. The heart you can't see just like beating beating a drum. The drum almost went sour on me. Okay, well, listen, good luck. Hope you're doing good. I'm doing okay. I'm still smelling them and not pushing them up. We had an interview with Jay Jaffe, who wrote a book about who should be belong in the Hall of Fame. And one thing he said, which I know you would agree with, that Pete Rose and Joe Jackson don't belong in the Hall of Fame. But he said guys like Alec Rodriguez and Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. What would you say to that? Why should they be in the Hall of Fame when they use steroids? Well, his, uh, the guy, the guy with the Yankees, who was that third baseman? A-Rod? Rodriguez, yeah. He was bad when he was with the Texas Rangers. Now, you know, one thing, uh, if if you take the stats away from them when they're on steroids, you can tell when they're on steroids. Hell, the owners should have been able to tell, able to tell it. The manager should have been able to tell it. And when they're on steroids, if you take those stats away from them, see what they see what they accomplished then. It would be very little. And the problem is, well, the problem I got with it is that the poor, those poor guys behind them, you either had to confront them, snitch on them, and do it yourself, otherwise you went home. And a lot of guys went home because they didn't play on the same level. Major League ball player, there should be no exceptions to the rules. And Bonzi, you know damn well, Bonzi was on steroids, and and Rose gambled on baseball in uniform. It was it was written in the clubhouse, no gambling on baseball. Period. And now we got a guy by the name of who's this Mac? Who's this Mac guy in St. Louis? McGuire. McGuire, when he was on steroids out in the West Coast, you seen him when he first got there, and seen him when that other outfielder got got him on steroids. And then uh, I tell you what, if they want to do anything, they ought to do what the what that uh, motor that, uh, cyclist that got nailed with. He he swore that he didn't use it. He got nailed. And they took everything away from it. That's what they ought to do to these guys. There should be no exceptions to the rules. The way you got rules if you're going to make a butt. Now, I think what Jaffe's argument was part that the whole baseball community was complicit. The managers knew they were taking steroids. The coaches knew they were taking steroids. A lot of the newspaper reporters knew that. The management of the organization knew it, and nobody did anything. Nobody had balls enough then to do it. If you got balls, you ought to be able to do it. You ought to live up to the rules. Rules are rules, and these guys, I don't care if anybody did it. You look at them, and you know damn well they had done it, and I feel sorry for the guys that got cut because they couldn't keep up with the guys in that position. Now, that's a good point because, you know, some some other guy plays by the rules straight and maybe has a marginal major league career or whatever, and he could have had a better career, but he played by the rules, and nobody remembers him now. Well, I'm just talking about that A-Rod. You know, he's going to signing autographs now for big bucks when he shouldn't be even that included in that. And when he was with the, who was it, Texas Rangers, I guess, he was a shortstop. He was using them then. Well, the guy behind him got whacked, and the guy behind him in, when he went to the Yankees got waxed too. That's bullshit. 
I heard, too, you know, we were talking about it. Solly Hemus is not doing real well right now when you're trying to raise money for Solly Hemus. Oh, no, I just, I, I don't raise money for Solly Hemus. We just had a, we had an acknowledgement of Solly Hemus in, in honor of Solly because he was part of my brace. He helped me. In 19, I go back with Solly in 1962 when he was scouting the Texas League, and I didn't know it. When I started my baseball program, the Ron Hunt Eagles Baseball Association, in 84, I guess it was, I called him and asked him if he would write a letter so I could give it to all the guys on how and why he signed me and why he was there, because I didn't even know he was doing this. Well, the Mets sent him out there to see me play, and he followed me around all that year and put in the word for me. And that winter, uh, the Mets picked me up on a, on a conditional basis, which I didn't even know that at the time because I'm, I'm, I'm stupid and ignorant. I'm married uh, 56 years. September 16, 1961 was the happiest day of my life. That's what she tells me to tell everybody, and she's got my money. <laughs> I got five cans buried in the ground in the backyard she can't find yet. <laughs> but anyway... Sally and I have been friends and been in touch with each other, and I just thought, well, by golly, it's about time somebody realized that, and I tell all my kids, you you got to hustle all the time because you never know who's watching you, and this is the best example. I had no idea he was there. I had no idea the Mets were interested in me, and then they, bought, they purchased my contract on a conditional basis, which I didn't know what that was. Went to Florida. And Casey Stingle, Miller Huggins Field, I guess it was. Sally Hemus, Paul Wayner, Eddie Stanky, Cookie Lavagetto, and Casey Stingle, all little ball. And one thing about I learned about Casey right away, you didn't lie to him. You tell him the truth, you, you do what he tells you to do, and if you got a problem, you go to him. You don't go to somebody else, and you don't talk behind his back. And I did okay, and I was number seven of seven second baseman, and I broke camp number three. And then Larry Burright, I think, was the second baseman at the time. He wasn't doing very good. And I remember what Casey said in spring training. If you got a problem, you come to me. So I run across him in the runway in Philadelphia, I believe. I said, Casey Stingle, Ron Hunt, number 33, second base, because he remembered numbers. He didn't remember names. He said, yes, son, what can I do for her? I said, I don't think the second baseman, Burright's doing very good offensively or defensively. Maybe this would be a good time to see if I can play here. He said, you want to play that bad? I said, yes, sir. He said, you played them all. That's how I got my start. You mentioned some names there. Cookie Lavagetto, of course, coach with the Mets. How did you run into Paul Wayner? Down there in the winter ball. Okay, so what was it? Paul Wayner, little little poison, big poison. He taught hitting. He said uh, he choked up on the bat. I wasn't choking up on the bat very much at the time. He choked up on the bat, and he said, look, idea is to hit line drives. Somebody's got to be quick to get to them, or hit ground balls. Somebody's got to get it. Somebody's got to throw it. Somebody's got to catch it. You're making somebody do something. Fly balls, if you don't have power, don't pop it up. And you got eight inches of a bat about two, about an inch wide. That's the main part of the bat. What the hell are you holding it all the way down for the end for to impress who? You're supposed to impress your manager, your coaches, and the fans. And that's who I played for. I played for the Mets fans. And once you were traded, after I spent four years with the Mets, and I was traded in the winter time, and the Mets didn't even call me or nothing. The sports writer called me, and I was traded to the Dodgers. And I said to Jackie, you know, we're going to play for the fans and the money and the hell with the owners. And that's basically what I did. Well, I fooled them for 12 years. We needed four years in the majors to be eligible for pension. They didn't read one to one day. Well, you had a pretty good on base percentage, so I don't think you fooled anybody. <laughs> you knew it. Well, Sully Hema sent me a, a thing not too long ago where I'm number, he's number six and I'm number 22. Yeah, what's that? Second baseman on base percentages or middle infielders? Yeah, second base, I believe. I don't know. I, I can't see it anymore. I know Solly Hemus had an on-base percentage of like 380-something, which is remarkable. Yeah. If he was playing today, who knows what his contract would be. Well, we played, I played for $7,000 a year, and now they're making 400 and some odd thousand. They need one year and one day in the majors to be eligible for pension. We needed four years. Anything less than four years, we got nothing. 
I got another question about the Hall of Fame. The same guy, Jaffe, says Gil Hodges does not belong in the Hall of Fame. Now, you played with Gil. I mean, I, I know a very short period of time. What's your opinion? I don't know. I don't know anything about him. I, know, I knew he was a first baseman with the Mets for one year, but I didn't know him as a ball player when he was in his prime. You know, they ought to have a group of guys that are responsible for baseball, major big baseball and, and rules, regulations, and stats. Now, if he, if he qualifies stat-wise, then I think he ought to be in. I don't know. But I don't know. I don't know. If, he, if, if anybody used steroids or something like that, they ought not to qualify because they're not, they didn't play like anybody else. I played with my God-given ability. I didn't have any steroids or pot or that crap that they, they use. Well, the pot, I don't know anything about the pot. But the steroids, you just look at the, the muscle tone and everything that they develop. Hell, look at McGuire now. McGuire's a skinny guy. Got a neck, got shoulders, got a head. You can see all three. <laughs> well, who voted him into the Cardinals Hall of Fame? I don't know. I guess the fans. I don't know who votes on that stuff, but I'm saying they ought to have a board that are untouchable. Hell, put me in touch. Put me in charge. I'll make sure it's done right. You know, that guy that rode the bicycle, who was his name? Armstrong. Armstrong. He said, what, what, what's the problem with peeing in the bottle at 8 o'clock in the morning if you got nothing to hide? Well, he had plenty to hide. When they found out about him, they took everything away from him. They didn't ask him when you did it, when you used it, when you did this, when you did They just took it all away from him. That's what they ought to do to these ballplayers. I get tired of hearing Bonds' name as a home run hitting leader when he's not. There's going to be a movement to put him in the Hall of Fame before too long. Well, I think it's bad. I think, in fact, I'll call uh, the commissioner and tell him what my thoughts are. Well, I hope he listens to you. Oh, I call him every once in a while anyway just to give him some shit. But, uh, you know, if they get aboard and, uh, you know, if if they're listening to you, fine. If they're not, then I hope they, I hope they clean it up. I hope they keep it clean and... I want to thank uh, the people and the fans in New York. I got uh, probably, well, I got 39 ball players that play at that ballpark and fundraise for me. I got about another 20 people I'd like to see sometime. Aunt Louise, the lady that gave me those chairs, she's still alive. She's in the hospital, but she's still alive. And, oh, there's a book out by the name. Bill Sullivan put a book out. Uh, Let's see, something before the miracle. Long before Mets. the miracle, the making of the New York Mets. Bill Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice. Uh, that's a nice little book on. Well, I got a nice article in there, but he didn't pay me for it. So, <laughs> you know, as long as I, as long as I get something done for the fans, I don't mind. Listen, Ron, a lot a lot of us back from the early 60s, the Polo Ground Mets, the first Shea Stadium teams, they appreciated the way you played baseball back then because you gave us a performance for our dollar. You were you played I hard. Got, I got hit a lot, too, and <laughs> I'm, I'm paying for it now. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, don't be sorry. 18 times I got hit, 15 due to baseball, and my wife didn't give a shit how I got on base as long as I went down the first and turned left. Make too many rights, you went home. Well, you know, today people appreciate on-base percentage a lot more than they did when you were playing. Well, today they got, they're got they using the end of the bat. They're hitting the hell out of the ball. It's a wonder one of those bats hasn't stuck somebody in the chest or hit a fan or something with those little... I don't know what they're made out of, but they're awful. I remember the first bat I got from the Major League scout, Milwaukee Braves scout, Dick Keeley. Walked up to me and said, here, I want you to play second base. I said, okay, if the manager will let me. He did. Now, here's the, here's the major league bat. I said, can I choke up? He said, well, hell yeah. Because I, my grandpa raised me in the city of St. Louis. We had one place to play ball, and that was the Sisters of the Poor, which was about two miles away, and I had a walk. And he said, you know, you hit the ball hard by choking up. There's only eight inches of bat there and about an inch wide. As long as you hit the ball solid and run like heck. Don't look at it, just run. And that's what I did. Grandpa told me how to hustle. Did your grandfather play any ball? Oh, we played cart ball. We played pitch bottle caps. We played bottle caps, pitched horseshoes. Nope. He was a city. He was. He worked for Falstaff Brewing Corporation. He had to walk to work. Mom had to walk to the bus. She worked for 
White Rogers and Grandma raised me. And if you sass Grandpa, he was about five foot two. If you sass Grandma or anybody, you better duck because you're going to get a backhand. <laughs> None of this please, Mother May I, or sit in the corner or crap. You got whacked. <laughs> but anyway, I appreciate you having me on. I thank you for allowing me to thank the Mets fans for the beginning. And I still like to get back in town to see you. Okay. And if I do, I'll say hi to you, but I won't go in for free because they don't want to pay me and they want to run me in and out. And I, I went, I went three or four days there to one day for them, and then I'll my wife and I just piddle and diddle with the fans and some people that we still stay in touch with. I love you all, and I thank you very much for staying in touch with me. All right, Ron, we love you too out here. Take care. Don't forget to sell me some copies now. Okay. Take one, care. One original and one and about five or six unedited. Okay. In fact, well, in fact you cleaned my voice up this time pretty well, but you know that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're doing pretty good on that. <laughs> A lot yeah. better than the first hey, time. Love you, man. Take care. Take God care. bless you all, and thank you for staying in touch. We'll do that. You know what I love about baseball? It's history and the fact that, you know, everybody has a different opinion about baseball history. And that's what we experienced tonight. Now, next week, we're going to have, you know, film director on George Mendeluk. If you haven't seen the film, you, you, you may want to look at his film, The Bitter Harvest. And it's about Ukraine, the Holodomor, back in the 1930s. Those of you who don't know anything about history, it was horrible what Stalin did to the people of the Ukraine in the 1930s. And as George Mendeluk says, it's really not understood in history, the total evil that is Stalin. And one of the things that his film brings to light is you realize that the Soviet system, that Stalin, they were evil people. The first thing they do when they go into the town, they kill the priest, they kill the mayor, and then they start starving the people bit by bit. They just start taking away their freedoms little by little, and then, you know, their friends in the New York Times help them along with it, which is not as much in the movie as George Mendelek would like, but he does speak about it. And at the people in the universities, they slowly get brainwashed, and they get hit with euphemisms, you know, like where starvation, death, becomes like, well, food shortage. So George Mendeluk next week, politically incorrect director, and he'll say that himself, Bitter Harvest. And he's been around in Hollywood, you know, like 40 years now. He's a veteran director. He did a film that's close to his heart, Bitter Harvest. We're going to be talking about that next week on Ask the Lawyer. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our buddy Patrick Wayne on talking about the John Wayne Cancer Institute. And we're going to be having a fundraiser for the John Wayne Cancer Institute on October 9th at the Bay Ridge Manor on 76th Street or 5th Avenue. There'll be more information about that in the later weeks. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.